0: Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and we are here with a with a really interesting episode tonight. I'm really excited that we were able to reach out and get our guest on tonight, and we'll have more about that coming up here in just a second, but we can't have the show at all without our esteemed co-host, Sam Bradley. Hey, Sam. Hey, Jamie. Well, things are...
1: Uh... Warming up a little bit here in Colorado, even though the day after the first day of spring we had more snow, it keeps doing that to us. But, you know, that's the way it works out here. But I want to jump into our topic tonight because it's going to be fun. And we got Dr. Joe Holly with us. Who, uh, Hi, guys. Take part. How's everybody. So, our guest tonight is Dr. Yaz- Yasmin Ali. She's a cardiologist. Uh, assistant clinical professor of medicine, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, and a number of other things. But the interesting thing about her is the book that just came out in February, as in last month, about the Waverly train disaster. But unless you're kind of old, you probably don't remember it because it. The book actually coincides with the 45th anniversary of said event, but it was sentinel in a number of ways, including that it was the predecessor to FEMA being created. So we're going to have some interesting discussion about that. I'll just throw this out, and then we'll bring in the doc. Um, I was interested in the fact that former U.S. Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist, who's a physician, um, has the comment, Walk Through Fire, the name of the book is Walk Through Fire, The train Disaster That Changed America, and indeed it did. Walk Through Fire captures a pivotal life-altering moment in history that forever shaped our policy and our governments and crystallized the irreplaceable role of the community hospital. Dr. Yasmin Ali gives a voice to the small town heroes who overcame unimagined adversity when the lives of their neighbors and loved ones were on fire. The interesting thing is he's also part of the story. So, Dr. Ali, you want to tell us more about yourself?
2: Well, thank you so much for having me on. I do have to issue a correction there because of who we're talking about. Dr. Bill Frist is not in the story himself. It's actually a cousin of his, Dr. John Frist, who is a plastic surgeon who treated uh, one of the burn victims. I just I just had to get that in. Um, but I am so pleased to be here, and, and thank you so much for having me.
1: You're very welcome. So what made you decide that this book needed to be written so many years later?
2: Yeah, so I grew up in Waverly. Waverly is my hometown. And if you grew up in Waverly, then you knew that there was a train disaster. But you may not may not have known all the details about it. Uh, and so that's certainly how, how I grew up with it, hearing some of the stories. But it wasn't until... The summer of 2011, and actually, this this is in the acknowledgments, the first paragraph to uh, of the acknowledgments in the book, because this was such a striking moment for me. In um, the summer of 2011, I happened to be visiting Waverly in my parents' clinic. I was down from Nashville, and a man by the name of um, the nickname of Toad Smith uh, came up to me to say hello. And as we were talking in the hallway, my father, who's a surgeon, came out of one of the exam rooms and said. Hey, Mr. Smith, show her your hands. And uh, Mr. Smith did show me his hands, which had been severely burned in this disaster, and My father came over and we all got to talking about the operation that my father performed to, it's called degloving the hands, where you take all of the skin off the hands because all burned. And he he has full function, you know, mostly, I would say 99% full function of his hands now. And so we talked about it and then he told me exactly how it happened. And he's such a marvelous storyteller. I thought, why have I not ever read this anywhere? This is an incredible story. It, there ought to be a book. <laughs> and so now, 12 years later, <laughs> there is a book. Um, but that was really the sentinel moment was hearing his story and then realizing that there were so many other people who had stories like that that had never been told. I mean, we knew the statistics, 16 people died, 200 people were injured, but we have never seen really the stories behind it. And and the true history of the disaster from beginning to end had never been, been put out in any form, in any kind of media. And so I wanted to, to do justice to that. Well,
1: you certainly did. And it's interesting you should mention Toad because he's one of very many people you have in the book that just getting to know them and their stories. But there's a short paragraph on your prolact that I wanna share that gives you a little insight as to what they were dealing with. Police Sergeant Elton Toad Smith looked up to see what had struck him on the forehead. What he saw made his blood run cold in spite of the sudden searing heat. It seemed as if the entire rail bed had been hurled into the sky in one giant whirlwind of rocks the size of golf balls. Debris flew everywhere, beams from buildings, metal from train cars, even a hard hat whirled above him, leaving him to wonder about the head that had been wearing it. And surrounding it all were the never-ending billows of smoke, streaked with through with blinding flashes of white that gives me chills and Jamie's a writer also so I'm sure he can appreciate that but he's one of the people I want to learn more about but I'm going to throw this to Joe because there was a a a young guy just graduating high school that wanted to be a doctor in 1978 and his name was Joe Holly what do you remember? (laughs) <laughs> what do you remember about
3: this, Joe? Uh, honestly, I, I don't remember much about it at all. Uh, I, I have a very vague memory uh, of it sort of reaching national significance, but I didn't really appreciate the the, the details and sort of the, the ripple effects uh, related to uh, changes on the national level uh, from the story. So uh, a, a very uh, young... Uh, and not paying very much attention kind of uh, approach to that.
1: Well, the interesting too is that Joe now works for FEMA, which was one of the changes that came out of this. Um, can you talk about the event itself, Dr. Ali, and, and what you remember happening or have learned through your interviews and such?
2: So just so your listeners know, this is what happened. On the night of Wednesday, February 22, 1978, so just over 45 years ago, a 96-car L&N freight train derailed in the center of Waverly, Tennessee, my hometown. Among the 23 wrecked cars were two white 30,000-gallon tankers full of liquid propane. And when they derailed, they did not know they contained liquid propane because they were mislabeled. They were labeled for anhydrous ammonia. Then two days later, at 2.55 p.m. on the afternoon of Friday, February twenty-fourth, 1978, one of those propane tankers exploded during the cleanup efforts. And that explosion took 16 lives and all of Waverly's Newtown section with it. And more than 200 people were injured, as I've mentioned before.
1: That is scary. You know, and it's interesting because your book is so new, yet it's saying this was the worst event that occurred in Tennessee, probably the entire state. But now we've had these very recent, similar events in Ohio. Joe, do you have any sense of how that compared with Waverly?
3: Uh, I, I don't know enough about Waverly to to give a good answer to that. I think that the uh, uh, at least the Ohio derailment uh, did not involve you know massive explosions and significant loss of life. Uh, so clearly a, a major step up. Uh, I can relate it to a uh, a propane eighteen uh, wheeler that. Uh, was in an accident here in Memphis and resulted in several lives lost and and an amazing amount of property damage just off the interstate where that uh, uh, tanker truck exploded.
1: Any thoughts so far, Jamie? Any questions?
0: No, I just I think it's fascinating. I think the the number one thing that you can draw from the the Ohio incident versus the incident in Waverly is is that there were no loss. There's no loss of life in the Ohio incident, um, thank goodness. Um, and um, so that that's a one positive thing. But there, are, you know, there are some similar things to do with um, some of the un, the lack of knowledge of what exactly was being carried in the train and things like that that didn't get to authorities in a timely fashion. Um, so you know, it seems like there's <laughs> we're doomed to repeat history in some cases, even if it's not quite as bad in in the sense of of loss of life and injury. But I, I'm curious to find out more about you know how did the town respond because this was this was obviously a major incident and would have taxed any community's responders uh, in in a situation like this, especially. When this is very early in the formation of what we consider emergency medical services today, this is uh, in the very early days of EMS.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I go into some of the history of EMS and specifically the emergency management services in Waverly and what they were like at the time. I go into that in the book, and you're absolutely right. It was... um, It was a time when they had just transitioned to more modern ambulances. They used to use what they called combination vehicles, which were actually hearses that could be uh, combined with ambulance equipment and converted into ambulances depending upon the need. You can believe that. So so I go into detail about that in the book. And the um, response to the explosion itself, I mean, the uh, first responders were quite overwhelmed. You're absolutely right because this is a small town, just over 4,000 people. Um, They had, I think, um, half of their police force was either killed or injured. In, in the explosion, um, they lost their police chief, they lost their fire chief, a number of firefighters were injured uh, very badly, um, one of them with up to 75% burns, and that's Frank Craver, who is featured quite a bit in the book. Um, As you can see, because I was able to talk to him, he survived, but it was remarkable that he did, given how badly he was burned. So he was one of the firefighters. Um, And then Waverly's two fire engines were both um, destroyed or rendered useless in the explosion because they were down there with their water cannons trained on the propane tanks trying to keep them from exploding once they realized what was in them. Um, And so they were right there when the tank exploded. And the fire engines were were damaged, and uh, so it, within within hours, though, they were able to get help from surrounding counties as far as first responders. Um, they sent out a mayday call for ambulances, and um, one of the things that people who recall the disaster talk about is. Seeing all the ambulances, even people in Nashville remember ambulances streaming into Waverly just for miles and miles of ambulances because they came from something like 39 surrounding counties, sent their ambulances, um, Mutual aid fire departments came to Waverly's aid to help put out the fires. Uh, Law enforcement came. um, uh, Metro Nashville's police chief came down, and uh, Metro Nashville took over law enforcement for activities in Waverly for weeks following the disaster because of how— devastated the uh, Waverly Police Department was. And then, you know, I go into detail in the book about the triage that happened with the uh, first responders at the hospital, the medical staff, the doctors and nurses in the emergency department. And I think they you know, in in the NTSB report, the National Transportation Safety Board, they they outline a lot of things that went wrong when they did their investigation and released their final report. There were a lot of things that went wrong to result in this in Waverly that day, but there was one thing that went right, and they actually mentioned this in the NTSB report, and that was the triage that happened at that hospital. It was called Nautilus Memorial Hospital. It was Waverly's Community Hospital at the time. And uh, that hospital had the foresight to have a disaster plan in place, which a lot of hospitals didn't have at the time, And um, but they did. And the week before, they had just happened to do a mock disaster drill, just the week before. So they were able to put, they called it Operation Black. They were able to put Operation Black into um, into go mode, and part of that was sending. And this tells you the times: 1978. We didn't have cell phones or internet or anything like that. So what happened when they activated Operation Black at that hospital? They a courier would go from the hospital to the radio station, and the radio station would broadcast the Mayday call. So so that was how they started taking taking care of things and getting more of a robust response into Waverly. Um, but, you know, they triaged 40 patients in the hospital within the for- first hour, and not a single living patient that walked into that hospital or came in to that hospital died while on their watch, which is truly remarkable um, given the circumstances.
1: Well, th- we need to explain this was a two room ER, <laughs> very That's right, rural. 160, 160 <laughs> square feet at most and the other interesting thing is that both your
2: parents were involved in this right they were that's right um my mother uh, who's an internist was the uh, doctor on call for the er that day they all you know took shifts and friday was her day for the emergency department and um, when this happened you know she realized she's not a surgeon she doesn't treat burn patients beyond the just very acute protocol. And so she called my father, who um, was in their clinic down the street, and uh, he's a um, he's a general surgeon and had uh, trained in trauma surgery. And when he was in Washington, D.C. at Howard University Hospital, that was mostly what he did was trauma surgery. And they treated all the burn patients for the uninsured um, patients of the city at that time. So he had had a lot of experience with treating burn patients and he was also um, a major in the US army and he had had mass casualty uh training for you know as if there were going to be a theater of war they have to drill in that so he had had that training as well so it was um it was it was helpful for him to be there
0: that day
1: oh my god i can only imagine Um, Jamie, you got
0: a question? Yeah, I just I I, I get chills thinking about having, you know, being in that small community hospital and having something devastating like this come start coming through the doors. And, you know, I I, I wonder, Joe, you know, what your thoughts are, because we've we've talked about this when we talked about um, some of the the mass shooting incidents that people self self delivered themselves or friends or relatives to the hospitals um, outside of the EMS where they were just walking in um, and how that overwhelmed a modern hospital facility. I can only imagine what it must have been like back then.
3: Yeah, I completely agree, Jamie. You know, it's funny how often uh, these things seem to occur uh, shortly after uh, a disaster uh, simulation has happened and the incredible impact that that has on uh, a, a, an agency, uh, hospital, or uh, service to be able to respond. I have no doubt their disaster drill in the, in the early preceding uh, this event made a huge difference in their ability to step up as they did and, and truly do amazing things.
1: Well, I want to move on with uh, recovery and some things that happened after, but Joe wants to know about Toad. What was his story? And I know that you ran into him later, and that seemed to be a theme in the book, too, uh, that these people that helped these folks ended up seeing them again later, and that's that's very cool. But tell us about Toad.
2: Uh, Toad Smith, as you mentioned, opens the book, and really he's the reason behind the writing of the book. So he was a police sergeant at the time. His first name is actually Elton, and the the nickname Toad is explained in the book. Uh, so, there's a little story about that. But um, he uh, he was the police sergeant who who survived, quite honestly. So, and was that at the site at the moment that the tanker exploded? And so he happened to have put on his jacket, which had a flame retardant interior um, and, and five minutes probably before the tanker exploded. And I think if he hadn't done that, he would have been burned much more severely, much more of his, his, uh, body surface area and might not have survived, uh, or done as well as he did. But because he did that, when the tank exploded, he happened to be sitting in his, uh, police car and saw it and knew exactly what had happened. And, um, got out of his car started running had a walkie-talkie in his left hand and um the first thing he remembers after running away from his car is seeing this blue wall of flame just come in front of him which was the you know antecedent propane uh that that uh the wave of propane that came out of that tanker right before it all ignited and so he runs through that and uh Run! Sees that buildings are starting to catch fire around him, and he's telling himself, "I've just got to get behind one of these buildings, and maybe I could outrun the fire. Maybe I could get away from it." And uh, the building that he is trying to get behind is called Slade and Lumber Company, and it's going up in flames. He gets he gets halfway down the front wall of the building, and the wall the the corner of the building behind him goes up in a fireball. And so he's running as fast as he can, but he can't outrun the fire. And so another fireball comes out in front of him just as he gets to the corner, the far corner of the building where he could turn the corner. And so he decides, well, this is it. I, you know, I'm going to just go through this fireball and and hope I come out on the other side. Um, And he did. I mean, miraculously, he did. And he is the one, because he. Did get through the fireball. He still had the walkie talkie in his hands, which were completely burned, by the way, and he could see the flames coming off the backs of his hands. Um, And, you know, he's trying to put out the flames on his hands and realizes he's still holding the walkie-talkie. He keys the mic and calls in the explosion. So he's the first person to let police dispatch know that the tanker had exploded because they didn't know at the police station. So then he gets gets the emergency response started. And uh, as for himself, you know, he's able to Uh, find help and get in a pickup truck and get carried to the hospital that way.
1: And as you said a little bit about it earlier, his recovery was amazing. I mean, you wouldn't expect someone who had a complete gloving to be able to use his hands again. Joe's loving this. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this guy definitely had a guardian angel i love this guy but what you know people folks that really
2: stood out when you interviewed oh frank craver definitely so um so toad opens the prologue frank craver opens chapter one because he was the first first responder well well i'll take that back he was the first firefighter on the scene actually the first responder on the scene was buddy frazier who was a, a very young police officer at the time. He was called to a train derailment with his brother because they happened to be the guys out on patrol that night. And they did not know when they called in a der- derailment to them. They didn't know if, you know, maybe a it was a civilian, a passenger train car, or a uh, uh, an automobile that had been on the tracks that had been run over and, and maybe derailed the train. Who knew? So when they got there, they had no clue. Just they were crawling on top of this mountain of wreckage. And uh, and Buddy Frazier is a very interesting person, and and he's featured in the book. And he later became Waverly's Waverly's chief of police, and then city manager, and now is the mayor of Waverly. So he's completely dedicated his life to public service and to commemorating memories and artifacts from the train disasters. He was he was an incredible person to talk to and interview, and helped a great deal with getting the facts for this book. Um, then the other person I had mentioned was Frank Craver. So he was the first firefighter on the scene, and Waverly had a completely volunteer fire department at the time. And um, Mr. Craver uh, was one of those volunteer firemen, and he was also um, a an embalmer. So, you know, because volunteer volunteers have to have other jobs, and so his job was as an embalmer. And um, he... <sighs> He went down when uh, it was his night on call. It's uh, like it was my mother's day in the ER. It was Frank's night on call for the fire department. And he had all the equipment that, that he used for to putting out grass fires in the trunk of his car. And that's what he went down to the derailment with, um, not knowing what to expect. So he's um, got a
1: very interesting story, <laughs> too. <laughs> I love these guys. So, Joe, it, this says something about the tenacity of Tennesseans, right?
3: Uh, no doubt about it, right? Uh, it's a volunteer state, so everybody does wears lots of hats and uh, uh, steps up when, uh, when the need is there. So
1: this did a lot of damage not only to the people, um,
3: but the town
1: itself. How long did it take to recover from all of that?
2: Yes, so the Newtown section of Waverly was never rebuilt, so it actually never recovered, um, sadly. Um, and uh, other parts, other businesses in town um, were rebuilt. Uh, some of the businesses that had been located in Newtown relocated to other sections of town, but um, where a lot of the uh, damage occurred has is still today, like an empty parking lot. There's a um, a memorial. To the people who lost their lives, there is a uh, uh, L&N caboose that the city of Waverly uses as a train museum to um, commemorate this disaster. And um, uh, but the businesses themselves, I mean, it was a very thriving business district, never came back to to that extent.
1: Well, but I guess there's something good and everything bad. In this case, there was a lot of change in regulations. They found multiple errors, missteps, miscommunications, poor regulations. So this had a lot to do with overhauling the entire U.S. railroad industry from top to bottom with new standards for hazmat, containment, and training, as well as a model for firefighter and first responders that might be involved in something like this, because this is certainly not your everyday incident.
2: Oh, absolutely! There were so many changes on the national level, even ac- even ac- across the globe. Uh, there have been rail safety changes because of Waverly, um, but on the national level, and certainly on the local and regional level, and um, you mentioned uh, just you mentioned so many things. There, um, there has been so much legislation that came out of Waverly, landmark legislation like the Staggers Rail Act, which um, deregulated the industry in a way that allowed them to. Uh, to put money into the maintenance of their tracks because the tracks at the time were in such a state of disrepair that the term standing derailment had become commonplace. And a standing derailment is when a box car is, just sitting on the tracks and falls over because the tracks can't hold it. The tracks are in such disrepair. Those were the kinds of railroads we were dealing with, the tracks we were dealing with in 1978. So the Staggers Rail Act helped revamp the whole system. Then we had uh, the Federal Railroad Administration got involved immediately after Waverly and took the uh, high-carbon cast steel wheels, which were the wheels that were on the tank cars that carrying hazardous materials. They took all of them out of service. Okay so that that changed immediately then there was a change in the Couplers and couplers are the uh, the pieces of metal that hold the train together. So you know each box car to another and each tanker to another. So regulations changed on how they would be manufactured, um, how tank cars are manufactured, how they have to be insulated and shielded, how they have to be placarded, and this is coming up again in Ohio, by the way, if you look at the placard issue. But at the time, they had they had to change how they were labeling these tank cars. So you didn't have a tank car labeled for anhydrous ammonia carrying liquid propane, for instance. Um, And then we had, you know, you've, you've alluded to before, FEMA. So two business days after the explosion in Waverly, the National Governors Association issued a recommendation calling for the formation of a centralized federal agency for emergency management. And a year later, Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter, signed an executive order creating FEMA in response to that. So um, so so much has come out of that. And then with hazardous materials handling and training, uh, the governor of Tennessee, Governor Blanton at the time, was in Waverly that Friday night when the fires were still burning. He saw what happened, and he determined that Tennessee had to do something about how hazardous materials were being handled and transported. And so by 1980, he signed an executive order creating the Tennessee Hazardous Materials Institute, and that institute has developed programs, training programs, that have been used across the country for firefighters and hazmat handlers. So, you know, there's just been so much to come out of this. Joe, you're familiar with most of that, aren't
3: you? i am indeed although uh, i i'm sorry to say i had not appreciated um, the the common seed that uh, created so much of that
1: well one last thing that i found really of interest was in august of 2021 they had some intense rains in waverly which caused its trace creek to overrun its banks it swept through the town Pulling down hundreds of houses and taking dozens of lives in the quickly rising water so who came to the rescue fema so <laughs> there's some irony there that fema started in waverly but you know ended up being there to help
2: them out right absolutely uh, absolutely that was really incredible and that happened while i was still writing this book i actually thought i was almost done done writing this book and that terrible flood happened and really that flood took more lives than the train disaster did and it was more of a disaster in terms of lives lost and property damage and business devastation than the train disaster and so when FEMA was there to to come to the aid uh, of the people affected by that disaster it was just an incredible full circle that you could see it was really amazing
1: this whole story is amazing I wish we could talk for a couple more hours but Oh, we can't. So, Joe, any any final thoughts?
3: Uh, oh my gosh, uh, uh, just to say that uh, I've just ordered the book and I can't wait to read it.
2: <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm definitely going to read it word for word. I didn't get a chance to do that. Would it, did you get yours, Jamie?
0: Uh, uh, not yet, but I'm, I'm planning on uh, getting on it, uh, as soon as we're done recording. So I'm going to pick up a copy of that right away. And of course we're going to have links to this in the show notes, uh, for this episode. And, uh, this is going to be one of those books. I suspect a lot of our readers are going to be very interested in.
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, we don't we hope you don't have cost to write more books like this but we're sure glad you wrote this one cuz this is a fantastic story and who we who even heard of Waverly Tennessee and i i'm glad that you're bringing all this out because you know the story itself and, and the uh, the people involved were just fascinating and we love a good first person uh, perspective on this so you know, it, what, I, another thing that sticks in my mind is what Joe was talking about, the fact that they had just had, the hospital had just had a disaster drill. Who did that in 1978? But thank right. God they did it and that they had some processes in place. So it goes back to training, right, Jamie? Because that's what we keep talking about.
0: We do. And I think it's, a, you know, a great example of having, you know, even even some of the most basic training if done regularly and, and with diligence, can come to to the forefront when people are encountering a disaster. And it's one of the things that I think that Joe and the rest of the, the gang at Paragon Medical Education Group do such a good job of. Um, and we want to thank them for their sponsorship of this show. Um, Joe, you know, you got you guys bring people who have gone to these disasters, who are FEMA responders uh, in various types of disasters. And when somebody in an area or jurisdiction wants to have a specific kind of training, you bring somebody who's dealt with that before. And that kind of experiential training really comes in handy. Uh,
3: That it does. I'm going to bring Dr. Ali there because uh, she's a wonderful storyteller. And uh, this history is absolutely amazing. I can't wait to read this book.
0: Yeah, I I think that this is... This is something that I I could imagine would, would be a great presentation at EMS World or any of those um, um, emergency medical services or emergency management um, conferences, because this is such a fascinating story and uh, connects back to all of us in so many ways to how we do things today. So it's pretty interesting. Um, Joe, when when people want to reach out and find you at Paragon, where's the best place to do that? How can they reach you? And what, what kind of questions should they ask? Uh,
3: Well, they can find us uh, on the web at Paragon medical education group or on Facebook at Paragon medical group as well, uh, or through the disaster podcast. And uh, we, uh, we would love to talk to people uh, just because uh, we want to design training that suits them. uh, Exactly. So, uh, I'm excited to say we're going to be uh, spending much of our July in Florida doing multiple training sessions throughout Florida, uh, following up their recent uh, disastrous uh, early spring this year. So, uh, uh, looking forward to seeing our friends in Florida and uh, looking forward to
0: reading this book. Fantastic. Sam, uh, where can folks find you?
1: You can find me in the social media places under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley11. We have, uh, for Dr. Ali, we have a Facebook group, which is quite large and international, and they're going to love this book too. So you find me there and on the disasterpodcast.com website. Amy?
0: Well, you can find me under the handle PodMedic in most social media locations, so please friend or follow me there. And as always at the DisasterPodcast.com website, don't forget, when you go to any of the episode pages, you can subscribe to the show. There are links to subscribe on your favorite mobile device right there below every audio player on each of the episode pages. So uh, just go ahead and sign up and over there and um, get the podcast delivered to you so you don't miss any of these great episodes, just like like this one. It's just a fascinating story today. I'm so glad we were able to have Dr. Ali on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, and if you'd like to join our Facebook group, if people read the book and have questions, um, you can get them to you respond. I certainly will. Good deal. Well, Jamie, uh, this was, this was fantastic. I really enjoyed this. Um, I'm only going to say one thing about it. Read the book. (laughs) (laughs) You're (laughs) going to love this book. (laughs)